Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into Trophy on today's review episode. I can show you the world. Just take a look through my eyes. Trophy is a 2017 documentary. It is in select theaters now. Uh, I was able to catch it over the weekend. And the subject matter is pretty... I don't know, it's very much an issue that I've seen before. You know, uh, conservation and endangered species are... You know, anytime you go to a zoo... Uh, you know, there are a lot of like PBS documentaries about this type of a thing. There are people who are probably in your lives that are very conscientious about the food they eat and how those animals are treated and things on those lines. If, you know, a lot of vegetarians and vegans cite, you know, animal cruelty and uh, the way people treat animals as the biggest reason why they've decided to make that life decision. And while Trophy mostly it focuses on the wildlife indigenous to Africa, uh, it does have a greater sort of, I think, ripple effect on the way you look at animals in general. I think it, it seems to be a movie on the surface that is trying to say, you know, the way the way that this process is currently happening is not good and we need to course correct. But over the course of the movie, it becomes far more complicated than just that simple premise. And I found that incredibly intriguing and very compelling because this is a topic that going in, I thought I my mind was just perfectly on the correct side of this issue and I wasn't, I'm, I, you know, for the most part, I was very unlikely to change my mind about this issue. And yet, coming out the other side, I don't know necessarily that I think my mind has completely been changed, but I've definitely allowed myself to step back and take a beat and really try and put this puzzle together in a different way because it's made very clear that the obvious answer to this problem is not necessarily the best answer across the board. Trophy follows three different narratives. Uh, We're tracking three different people slash groups throughout this movie and kind of their impact on the conservation agenda, their impact on the wildlife population in in general and so we start out and the opening scene of the movie is uh what's his name um might not even tell me his name Uh, we open up on a hunter and uh i guess i don't have his name here but he he his opening scene he's with his son and they're in one of those uh, contraption things where you can kind of like, I guess poach isn't the pr- proper term, but like you can hunt an, a creature 
from the safety of like a tower almost. And they're there and, you know, the guy's teaching his kid how to hunt deer and he's going to hunt up his first buck. And, you know, the scene plays out. The kid shoots the buck. I think the the father ends up uh, killing it ultimately. And they go out, take pictures, etc. Pretty much a standard kind of hunting experience as far as I'm aware, uh, given the parameters. And... This guy, the father, is one of the three narrative storylines. So he is a big game hunter. He is, you know, we don't learn much about his his backstory, his private life, other than his relationship with his father. But we follow him from that point forward as he attempts to uh, get trophies and big game uh, kills of the big five animals and as the movie will explain the big five are an elephant a buffalo a um, rhino and an wow um big game five one of them's uh one of the big cats lion and leopard Uh, okay so lion leopard rhino elephant and buffalo those are the big, big animals. And he proceeds to go through this movie and hunt these animals. Uh, the second narrative is this guy who runs essentially a rhino breeding farm. Uh, he owns the rhino, uh, he owns this a large plot of land in Africa. Rhinos live there. I think he, at one point, he says he has about 1,200 rhinos living on his property. Uh, It's unclear as to whether or not he literally owns the rhinos. Uh, He might. But for the most part, he's, you know, just there to try and help them breed, help them survive, and so forth. And one of the ways he does this is by cutting off their horns. So this is the second scene in the movie. We see him and one of his teams on a jeep uh, tracking a rhino. They trank dart the rhino. And then proceed to, you know, protect the rhino's face and, you know, hide it, cover its eyes and hold it still as they saw off both of the horns of the rhino. And as he's explaining this later on, he says that, you know, he does this every couple of years so that they become far less desirable to poachers. Uh, You know, rhino horn is a very, very hot commodity. He goes on to tell us it's the most expensive thing uh, by weight that you can sell on the black market and he helps his rhinos survive because if they have no horns then they're worth far less to poachers than they would be otherwise uh but it's illegal to sell rhino horns so he basically kind of stockpiles them and stores them all in a storing facility at the time for the time being so he's he's the second guy and then finally, the third guy slash group we're following is this anti-poacher sort of wildlife conservationist person who is tasked with not only maintaining the safety of the wildlife and the animals in his district vicinity, but also uh, at times he's forced to kill one uh, in order to keep the villages and 
people that live in that area alive and from starving and uh, healthy. And it's, it's a very difficult position that he's in. And he proceeds to kind of explain to us how he can't, you know, he hates when he has to do that, but it's not some, you know, in that, in these circ- some of these circumstances, it's necessary to the survival of these groups of humans that they have the meat and protein and, and sustenance that they receive from a dead uh, animal, regardless of its level of endangeredness. Um, so, you know, that's very difficult for him. And that's very difficult for most people to kind of just recognize and understand. And so the movie follows these sort of three different groups that every once in a while interact or, or their same subject matter comes up as they're all parts and branches of the conservationist uh, movement happening in Africa, uh, South Africa. And the movie as, so an interview with the creators of the movie, uh, who are Shaw Shaw Schwartz and Christina Clusiao, I probably pronounced that wrong. They intended to make this film as a sort of obvious, you know, if you're hunting the animals, that's absolutely wrong in 100% of the circumstances and kind of an expose on that situation and those people. What ultimately ends up happening is that the issue is far more gray than you might think. And that is completely true for me. I was kind of blown away by just how complicated this issue is. You know, I went into this movie dead set on, look, if you're killing the animal, it's wrong. If Especially if there's not many left, like how can you help this animal if you're killing them. It doesn't make sense to me. I can't imagine a situation where it does make sense. But again, like I'm living in America. I'm, you know, I only see these animals at the zoo if I see them at all. And I don't fully understand the circumstances surrounding their endangered lives. I don't fully understand the people who live where these animals live. And that's a big part of this problem is it's not just that these animals are endangered and that they can't, you know, they can survive on their own, but they're being hunted and poached. And, you know, the the movie throws out a lot of different statistics. Um, I don't remember all of them, but uh, the biggest one revolves around rhinos. You know, rhinos are, uh, were put on the endangered list uh, a couple of years ago, I think, in like 2014, 2015, I think. And this guy that, that owns this sort of rhino farm, you know, he collects all these horns and his biggest sort of agenda in the movie is he's trying to make the sale of rhino horn legal. Because if he can simply sell these horns that he's cutting off of his rhino, he will have more than enough money to continue to raise them, breed them, and hopefully get them off, you know, endangered lists and near endangered lists and, you know, own more and more land, more and more rhino, and and ultimately, you know, just get to himself to a point where the rhinos aren't at risk anymore. 
Um, the other side of that coin is that it will hopefully dissuade poachers because the reason poaching rhinos has become so prevalent is because you can't sell their horns legally and therefore their price is far higher on the black market than it would be otherwise. So you have people killing these rhinos for their horns because they know how much money those horns are worth. The problem that is outlined in this movie with that is that you don't need to kill the rhino for the horns as they've demonstrated in the second scene of the movie and if you could simply own the rhino if it was your rhino its horn grows back you can continue to sell its horn for money which is what you know this breeder this guy wants to do and thereby you know facilitate and and uh fund his organization his 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 efforts the obvious problem with <laughs> with what this would be is like considering this guy already has 1200 rhinos you know we see the storage facility where he stored all these rhino horns he has thousands of pounds of rhino horn already at his disposal uh, he estimated that he could i think somewhere around like multiple tons of rhino horn every year that he collects which is astonishingly high and given you know that he has all of this product at, the, at his fingertips you know i don't know how that wouldn't completely dominate sort of the rhino horn market almost you know he i, I can't imagine there's anyone else in the world with the stockpile that he has and so that's kind of problematic it might be uh, and, you know, that issue is brought up, and his response is sort of along the lines of, well, everyone can do it. Like, I don't have to be the only person raising rhino. Like, I don't, you know, his goal, as he says, is not to have a stranglehold on the rhino horn market. It is to preserve the lives of the rhino. And, uh, yeah, well, however much you believe that, take, take it at, uh, however much value you want, but... It seems, and the impression I got from the movie is that his causes are noble, and I think it felt like they were. And so, I I did waffle a lot while I was watching the movie, but I think I ultimately landed on the side of I wish that they were legally sellable because I think this guy does want to help the rhino, and I think this is way to do it would not only let this guy r save and raise and breed more rhino but could potentially lower the amount of poachers because the movie shows us the statistic of when rhino horn selling became illegal, uh, the number of rhinos killed for poaching purposes skyrocketed. It, it went up at an alarming rate from, I think, 12 the year before this happened to like Hunt multiple hundreds and and thousands even i think it gets up to the thousands uh, a couple of years after it so there's man i i don't know it, it seems to me based on the information i have that when we find out at the end of the movie that they did legalize the selling of rhino horn that this was ultimately a good thing and uh, I mean, I don't know if there have been ramifications since then. Uh, it's a very recent change that has happened, so I would have to look more into it. But 
on its surface value, this seems like the safest way to fund this guy. And, you know, he has 1,200 Rhino. I don't know how many he started with, but he's clearly pro-Rhino. It just, I don't know how pro-Rhino he is simply because of their horns. I don't know. I don't know. Tough to say, but I do feel good that that's that's how things have progressed on that front. As far as the hunter, now we go, we actually watch him hunt a lion, we watch him hunt an elephant, Uh, we see him, uh, yeah, I think we see him hunt a buffalo as well, and a rhino. I don't know, I know we see the dead lion and buffalo, I don't think we ever see him hunt the leopard, as it turns out. So I'm not, mm, not sure, but uh, he, so his, his side of things is that as a trophy hunter, he is pumping, he and others like him are pumping in tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to hunt this animal into the economic system in South Africa. Uh, People who run safaris there, people who facilitate big game hunters, Uh, collect hundreds of thousands of dollars because of him and his uh, sort of business and his his lifestyle choices have had a profound impact on the conservation of animals because if the animals don't aren't there to survive who's going to hunt them so you have these people who are breeding and raising these animals purely to be killed but at the same time they are breeding these animals. So this one's far more murky. And this is the, like, this is the issue that like I came in and I was like, no, they're like, this isn't a good thing. Don't hunt the animals. You know, if you want to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to save these animals or to, you know, to, to keep them from being endangered, just spend thousands of thousands of dollars doing that. I don't know why killing them is that important. I don't know how that's a good thing. I don't know why people enjoy it. It seems barbaric to me and it's downright depressing like watching him out there in those situations and like smiling and excited and like clapping other people in the back because you know he just killed a lion. Like uh, this for me I, I can't I can't fathom that mindset. And there's this great sort of parallel that the movie draws as they're interviewing this guy. And he's explaining to us the sort of the way his his emotions and his feelings work while he's hunting. And so, you know, he's planning this big game, this big five, big five hunt uh, from the beginning of the movie. And, you know, the news, when when news comes out that rhinos are endangered, he gets like very disappointed and very disappointed. Uh, he's very upset because, you know, he wants to hunt this animal and he's been planning to for a while. And he goes on to say that the anticipation builds up for him from the moment he decides he's going to hunt such an animal. And so I think he, I think he says that it's been like 15 months that he, that the anticipation continues to build and continues to build and continues to build and he'll get up to that moment, and it's still this sort of anticipating and enticing moment right up until he pulls the trigger. 
And when he pulls the trigger, all that anticipation goes away. And all of a sudden, it's just, it's relief, it's joy, it's, it's elation, it's, it's uh, just, 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 you know, he, he's, it's flipping a switch, and all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's orgasmic, almost, is kind of how he was, like, describing it, you know, you get, you work this build up, you, you get up to sort of a tipping point, and finally, finally, you breach the edge, and all of a sudden, everything is just clear, and calm, and you can relax, and it's done, and you did it, and you're succeed, you're successful, and you've succeeded, and you're amazing. Uh, not how I would describe hunting, but, I mean, obviously, he's not the only one that has that feeling. Like, there are many, many, many people who feel this way about big game hunting, about regular hunting, uh, which is very alarming to me, kinda. So, that's really... I don't know. I mean, like, that does kind of explain why people like that do such things, but I just, I still can't exactly relate to it. And so another interview that we have with the anti-poacher guy is him talking about the exact same thing. And for him, it just ends differently. So for him, there is this sort of, you know, when he is forced to go kill an animal to feed an entire village, uh, he has this dread you know for him it's dread building up and up and up and this anticipation is killing him because he doesn't want to do this thing he doesn't want to uh, pull this trigger he doesn't want to kill the animal but he knows that he has to or people will die because they can't find food and because they can't afford food and they have none and so he pulls the trigger and for him pulling the trigger is like a switch where he's instantly filled with regret he hates himself for what he's done, he hates that he had to do it, he hates that it was necessary, and it's it's just overwhelming grief and depression. And that's that's very telling. Like he he says something along the lines of like he doesn't understand how anyone could enjoy having to do that because it is so traumatic and so awful and and you know, you're taking something's life away, and how can that be enjoyable? How can you like that? It's it's very difficult. And like, I, I totally agree with that. I, I, you know, I, I've never hunted, I've never held a functional gun uh, that could like actually hurt somebody. So I've never had a BB gun, I've never held a real firearm whatsoever uh i try to when at all possible you know if if i can remove living things from my house my apartment whatever it is uh without killing them spiders bugs etc and i just i get very upset uh, by that kind, even that, like, loss of life, like, bugs, you know, still, you know, whether or not I like them, whether or not they scare me, or they're creepy, or whatever, uh, and some are, and some aren't, and I still get really emotional by, by 
you know, if I even if if some, for some if in my process to capture them, they are killed, or if the circumstances force me to kill it because of what's what's happening, and I, I just I just don't. It's it's not. I I can't. I can't just I can't just like ignore that. I can't act like it doesn't mean something. You know, it doesn't matter if their lifespans five days, twenty days, whatever. It's still life, and like that's that's still important, and that still has meaning, and that still means something. And and I understand that this guy has to kill animals in order to feed humans. I I get that, but man, I just there ha there there seems as much as I understand that given the circumstances that is a solution. I look at this scenario and the situation and say, well, there has to be a better one. I don't know what it is, but there has to be a better one. You know, how can, you know, maybe I can't provide that solution. Maybe it's going to take money that I don't have money from donations, money from other people, uh, or, or just, you know, the, I, I don't know what, but, but there's gotta be a better solution than killing these amazing animals in order to feed starving people there there's just got to be a better way and so this movie what it does so well and why i think it is such a good documentary is because it does put you into the mindset of someone who would live in south africa because it's not as straightforward as just don't kill the animals because some of people especially people that are native to that area have to you know they are in such dire straits they're living in such corrupt economical systems that they cannot get ahead that they cannot dig themselves out of the financial holes that they're in and the only solution is to hunt for their food is to uh, just, you know, find their sustenance that way. And while, given the circumstances, like, I get that. I, I understand why that is happening. But that's not to say that that's the best solution. Because if the problem, because, like, the problem isn't that they're hungry. The problem is the corrupt system that they live in. And I don't fully understand that system. Most, if not all people who live in America do not understand that system because, you know, you don't see South Africa on the news, really. You don't see, you know, we have enough corruption in our own political and socio-economical systems to, to take care of that, like, we can't possibly, you know, try and control somebody, another country's, corruption at the same time and that is like that's just not something i was fully aware of even at all aware of uh, going into this movie and definitely clouds the issue i i don't think it grays it to a level of well we could be doing we killing more of these animals I, I that seems absurd but it does make it less clear-cut and at the very least, the movie has made me think about endangered species and animals like that far more 
um, unorthodoxly because I had a thought while I was watching this movie that I wanted to talk out a little bit on here. Uh, and, and please don't misinterpret this as me wanting the circumstance, just supposing the circumstance, I suppose. Suppose. And the thought I had was, why do these animals need to exist? Uh, uh, or more, more specifically, how is their existence beneficial to our own? You know, in a world where, you know, there's no lions or tigers, there's no giraffes or elephants or, or, or rhinoceros, leopard, buffalo, you know, what, what would we lose? What would disappear? What would not exist any longer? Uh, you know, and I'm sure that the answers are out there. I, I'm... You know, I, I, I've studied and, and seen enough nature documentaries and, and been interested enough in animals and the way that they impact humans to know that those answers are out there. I, I just don't have them in front of me. I don't know where to look for them. But I, I think that it just on the surface level, I, I don't know what we're what's gained from them you know if if there are no more rhinoceros in africa on the service level you know like does it like what what does that if there weren't any more like are they in by themselves individually providing us with something we need you know if uh, what what does their does, does the what they eat or uh, what they drink, or where they live, or their their living habitational methods lead us towards something that is impactful. You know, are they in are they in any way responsible for our survival in Africa, at least? You know, let alone outside of Africa, where their impact is almost non-existent. Is it the skin? or their meat, or their bones and horns. Uh, you know, I think, you know, there's skin from any animal that can be used for, you know, if we have, like, if we use the skin from a, 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 an elephant instead, like, why do we need rhinoceros? If we use the meat from a lion instead of a rhinoceros, why do we need the rhinoceros? It, it just, if it had never existed... You know, would that really fundamentally change Africa outside of its wildlife? Are there predators that can only hunt rhinoceros or bugs or, or smaller animals that rely on the rhinoceros to survive? I don't know. I, I mean, the, the, the nature, nat natural ecosystem is... And has always, I've always seen it, and it's always kind of been described to me as something that's incredibly fragile. And I, I definitely take that at face value. I think, you know, I just, like, look at the impact that bees have, and the fact that they're kind of going extinct is, is uh, very important. And it has this ripple effect across all of the world. But 
are all animal species really that impactful? You know, obviously we've hunted other animals to extinction, um, other and you know there have been extinction events that have killed off various types of species, and we're still here. Uh, I don't know what you know would still having those other animals make this planet better? At least its ecosystem. This is a question that I can't answer, and I, I wish I could answer it. Honestly, I, I just don't. I'm not sure what what the correct model is, because there don't seem to be enough. Like it's always it's always strange because I think predatory animals it's far easier to see their value at the face. You know, you see something like a you know a spider, as much as you may hate them, as much as they're creepy, crawly, icky, disgusting, whatever you want to think about them, they are pivotal predators in sort of the insect kingdom, you know, that microcosmos world. And so for something like, uh, you know, and a lot of bugs to that effect, you know, that like uh, they interact with flowers, they interact with um, the various plants and things around us, you know, flies and whatnot, you know, it's a lot easier and, and far simpler to look at them and say, okay, I can understand why there are elements of nature that rely on this creature. But when you look at something bigger, uh, you know, like a giraffe or like a rhinoceros, like an elephant, uh, maybe all of them combined are far, are, are very important to Africa and the existence of one of them, but if, if we didn't have rhinoceros, if, if immediately in the world, every rhinoceros was replaced with an elephant, other than the obvious, like, elephants are bigger than rhinoceros, uh, they don't have, you know, their horns and tusks are different, uh, whatever, other than those obvious differences, like, what fundamentally changes about Africa, about the world? And I, I just don't know that there's a really an answer to that. And to be fair, I haven't like Googled up an answer for that. I don't know that there necessarily is an answer readily available to us. But I don't know. It's something I thought of. And I, you know, it would just like, well, look, if there were no rhinoceros, people wouldn't hunt rhinoceros. And, you know, maybe like presumably this would lead to more people hunting elephant or whatever. But. I mean, that's the same issue we're dealing with now, and, you know, it's one less species to, to concern ourselves with. Multiple species, you know, different species of rhino. So, I don't know, it's weird, and, and I don't... It wasn't a thought I've ever had before, and so that's why I kind of thought it was kind of somewhat noteworthy to, to bring it up. So, uh, the last thought I want to bring up about Trophy is... There's a scene toward the end of the film where the hunter character guy uh, is celebrating, I think, his birthday with his family. And I don't remember the context other than he's inside with his family, but he refers to his son and he says something to the effect of, What are you, some kind of wild animal? And that's 
kind of weird because my my knee jerk reaction was to was something like uh why would you think that because you hunt wild animals like i don't know if he meant that as a, sort of an endearing term but to me it was the furthest thing from endearing because he kills wild animals and i'm like i'm looking at this and like kind of thinking on this is this this moment and like i don't know why you know i'm like well are you gonna go hunt your own kid like isn't that the next step you know what happens when hunt big game hunters have hunted every type of animal that they want to hunt aren't they gonna turn on humans too that's the deadly dangerous most deadliest game of all i think deadliest not dangerous I don't know. It was just it was just an odd moment, an odd line for this movie, and perhaps that's exactly why it's in there. But like, I don't, I don't know. If you are someone who, uh, I, I don't know. If you're if you're the kind of person, if you if you're in the business of killing things, if you are an executioner or or something along those lines, and you endearingly refer to someone you love as the type of thing that you are tasked with ending the life of like that you kill i don't i don't know man that's i don't know that's a little strange it's a little strange so trophy i've talked a lot about it i've gone into a lot of the aspects of it uh, i can't necessarily speak as eloquently as the people in this film and it's it's far more heartbreaking and far more enlightening seeing the movie uh regardless of sort of how detailed i have been and i think i've mostly just hit on the main elements of it uh because there's a lot of lot of subtlety a lot of nuance that i think really only comes across in the film itself so i would check it out uh probably not in the theaters you know i would wait but you know, I would check it out. And uh, it might be one of our documentary feature nominees this this year. It's certainly possible. I've seen solid buzz for it, and I, I'd heard about it before I went to see it, so that's always a plus when you're a documentary. That being said, uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, now let's talk about uh, this week in Fantasy Movie League. Here we go. We sink into our seats right as they dimmed out all the lights Yes, we're back with the sixth week of Fantasy Movie League for the Cinderella's podcast for the Cinderella's League, and we it was a pretty exciting week, all things considered. It seemed to be kind of dead on arrival when the My Little Pony projections kept going higher and higher and higher, up to like fourteen at some points, and it kind of felt like Seven Ponies and a Ninjago were gonna walk waltz away with this whole thing. I ultimately ended up playing Blade Runner, to my chagrin, and thankfully, uh, My Little Pony did not 
uh, perform as expected. It actually came in around 8.8. .8. And Flatliners was your best performer last week, uh, which saved me about $19 million in uh, um, 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 bonuses that I would have been further behind. But it's not just about me, it's about the whole league. And last week, we had five people play Seven My Little Ponies and a Ninjago. That's Film Obsessed, uh, Three Feet High and Rising, which is the blueprint slash the infamous, uh, Kill Music, Director's Cut, and Rybone all played Seven Ponies and a Ninjago. Uh, that lineup ended up coming in at $69 million. Uh, but they were ousted by a YoJRB James, who pulled in $70 million with his lineup of six, The Mountain Between Us, one Victorian Abdul, and one Battle of the Sexes. The perfect Cineplex last week was six Mountain Between Us and two Flatliners. So James just two screens away from a PC, but he still won the week by just under a million dollars. Uh, looking further down the line, the rest of the top 10 is filled in with people with IT heavy lineups. Uh, the box officer played six ITs, Kingsman and Mother. JL Eliborn had a Mountain Between Us, five ITs, Ninjago and American Assassin. Cinemania Theaters, a Mountain Between Us, four ITs, American Maid, Ninjago and Battle of the Sexes. And Perksplex had four ITs, three My Little Ponies and American Assassin. Uh, when you get to the back half of the league, uh, you see a lot of people, a handful of people with Blade Runners. I was one of them, VH Jennings, The Flex, Derek, and Shawbin, or Zach, who commented in the chatter that he was unable to reset his lineup. Uh, or, not unable, but forgot to reset his lineup after put, placing it early in the week. Uh, so, pretty unfortunate, but... Uh, either way, this is what we have right now. That's what ended up happening. So... For the season as a whole, uh, only, a, I think, three people ended up, three or four people ended up with uh, flatliners at all on any of their screens, and uh, nobody really came, you know, the only person that came close to the best best lineup was James. So, after week six, uh, no movement at the very top, Kill Music still uh comfortably in first place he is actually 24 million dollars ahead of number two and a little look-see at his uh page shows that he's ranked 55th in the league that is incredibly high very very strong season so far for him as we're about as we're at the halfway point right now uh christine h jensen's who was previously in second place has dropped to sixth uh, which is unfortunate her lineup was it looked like not uh, not set this week as she played a lineup of four its, a battle of sexes, and three blank screens, which isn't even a thousand dollars. Perksplex draw moves up from ranked third to second as Christine falls. Rybone moves up from fourth to third. Xanadu moves up from fifth to fourth. Uh, I fell from sixth to seventh. I fell one spot with my Blade Runner lineup. And JLA Born moves up from 7th to 5th. So your new top 7 are the same top 7, just a slightly different order. It's now Keel Music, Perksplex, Rybone, Xanadu, JLA Born, Kirstein, and Plexi. Me. Outside of the top 7, though, we had a lot of movement. So uh, your new number 8 is the box officer moving up from 10th. 
Your new number nine is Cinemania Theaters, moving up from 12th. Uh, following him are uh, Three Feet High and Rising and Director's Cut, who follow in 10th and 11th from 13th and 14th. Uh, moving all the way up from 16th place to 12th is Film Obsessed, 35. And then falling to 13 and 13 and 14 are previously 8th and 9th place uh, cont- competitors, The Flex and Shawbin. Uh, that uh, not checking in before the deadline on Friday is really going to come back to bite Shawbin if he can if he can't uh, get a PC in here. Or so uh, then in 15th and 16th you have Sven Cinema and James Yojrb who move up from 17 and 18th respectively. Uh, dropping to 17th from 11th is Derek. Dropping to 18th from 15th is the Iron Drews movie pit. And then MJ Labo and VH Jennings remain in 19th and 20th. Uh, James, who won this week, this is the fourth week to date that he has won, uh, which brings his uh, it brings his average weeks won per season up to 0.8 at the moment. So just about one per, per season he wins, and he's won two this season. So uh, already batting way above, cur- above average. Uh, he did not have any of the best performers. Uh, the most notable best performer this week was by the box or, or by Derek. He had his seventh, uh, which puts him just one spot behind uh, Xanadu, who's had eight this season. So they're in the front in the lead right now. Uh, but everybody has at least one, and uh, eight at the top is still uh, uh, anyone's game to to take that crown this season. So if I re oh, damn it, if I resort this custom sword that is headers, fine. Oh my gosh, you're gonna be a sometimes, sometimes score. No. Uh, da, 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 da. So fall seventeen uh, is is still shaping up to be very interesting as it as it turns out. Uh, you know, I haven't been toward the top of the se- season for a while. Uh, Shaman has also kind of he and I have kind of been floundering at the bottom of the top ten or just outside it. Uh, but meanwhile, Kiel Music and Rybone, the other two previous winners, have spent the majority of the season toward the top. Uh, but they're facing stiff competition from Xanadu and Perksplex, who uh, have been putting in some of their best weeks ever. And so it's kind of t- those four in contention right now. Uh, Kiel Music has $501 million. Uh, Perksplex has 477, Rybones at 476, Xanadu 471. Then you take another little jo- drop down to JLAborn at 452, Kirstein at 447, I'm at 445, The Box Officer 440, Cinemania 435, and Three Feet High and Rising 432. That's your top 10. So the, the distance and the gap is getting bigger. Uh, so we're only we're only halfway through the season, so I wouldn't say it's early enough for Q Music to really start to kind of play it a little safer than normal. I mean, obviously, what he's been doing so far has been working very well for him, uh, but um, I would say that at the moment, unless I, you know, if it were me, you know, if I unless I felt kind of threatened, you know, unless we came to a week where I was less than maybe ten million in the lead at, uh, 
going forward, I probably wouldn't take any even small risks necessarily. You know, not that I would start hedging every week, but um, you know, I'm looking for high floors above all else. You know, no matter what. Uh, and generally, high floors lead you to playing uh, movies who, that have already been out, so you're not playing as many new releases necessarily. Uh, and speaking of new releases, this is this week we introduce Happy Death Day uh, with a fantasy bucks of 350, The Foreigner at 143, and Marshall at 62. Uh, a lot of people put in the bonus bar about 70,000. Uh, dollars per FML buck, and that I think seems reasonable. This is an October weekend with a Friday the 13th, and a new horror movie is coming out. So uh, right now you look at looking at the research vault. Uh, Happy Death Day is at. Let me refresh this because it's fluctuated wildly since I last looked at it. Happy Death Day is about 50 percent used across all cineplexes. Blade Runner 2049 is the most used, however, with 53%. The Foreigner is at 48, It at 37, and The Mountain Between Us down to 32. So Blade Runner, Happy Death Day, The Foreigner, those are your big three anchors right now, the only things priced above 100. And uh, kind of feels like it's between those. Uh, I'd, be so, I'd be shocked to find a, uh, a cineplex that didn't use one of those, you know, I think you'd have to kind of go with, I don't know, you'd, ha you'd have to go with like eight its, thinking that it was going to be not just best performer, but best performer by a substantial margin, uh, or, the, or, or likewise for the mountain between us, and I, I don't see it taking it that far. So that's this week uh, in the Cinderella's Fantasy Movie League. Um, if you are interested in joining, head over. You can join now. Uh, we are They are just now starting the uh, second uh, Fall 17 second half league, so you could get in on the ground floor at that. Uh, or just join and uh, try to do well this season and, and learn the ropes in preparation for your championship run next season. Uh, password is hey guys. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, if you have any comments, concerns, questions, or answers, head over to uh, circleoffilm dot circleoffilm at gmail dot com. Send your comments, concerns, questions, and answers there. If you want to learn more about the website, about the podcast, about anything else, uh, head over to circleoffilm dot com. If you would like to support the show in any way, shape, or form, you may do so at patreon dot com slash circleoffilm. And as always, have a week. She'll never leave me Even as she fades from view